Welcome to episode two of the Genre Book Club podcast. My name is TJ, and today we will be discussing Catherine Arden's The Bear and the Nightingale. As well as unicorns, vampires, and maybe a little bit of zombies as well. Take it away, Chris. Oh, God. Guys, welcome to the second episode of the Genre Book Club podcast, um, or GBC cast, if you don't have all day. I am (laughs) Christopher Priman, the founder of the club. We will be talking about... Catherine Arden's The Bear and the Nightingale. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Um, It's been exciting uh, to do the first episode, and we're definitely happy to be back. I'm TJ. Uh, It's been a decent February, and I think think we're in for another good show and to have a lot of fun along the way. Absolutely. Um, And with us today, we do have uh, Bazad. Bazad, you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. I'm Bazad, otherwise known as Baz, and I'm very happy to be here once again. We also have Fairy. Fairy, you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. I go by Fairy, and I'm very excited to dive into this book with you all. I think it will be a really fascinating conversation, and I hope that you guys enjoy it as much as we do. All right. And Jessica, do you want to say hi to everybody out there? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Hi, I am Jessica, and I'm also very excited to be here for the second podcast episode. And Leslie, would you like to say hi to everybody? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Leslie, and I am super excited to be here today. Um, The book that we read last month was fantastic, and I'm really excited to talk about it with um, the crew here and see what they've got to say. All right. Um... Before we get into that, though, um, because that's going to get spoilerific for those who haven't read the book, um, we do have a little bit of really cool club news uh, going. Um, Boz, actually, do you want to talk to them about that a little bit? You're so reassuring and calming. Not to mention he doesn't say um like the rest of us do. Um, I don't say um all that much, man. I mean, um, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> it's a meditation. It's a meditation. Oh, but yeah, Buzz. Do you want to talk to them a little bit about the books for February? Absolutely. So, as was mentioned in our last podcast, the theme that I selected revolves around the apocalyptic. So, zombies, ruptures, twenty twelve. Anyone, and other aspects pertinent to the end of the world and we picked an excellent book and by we i mean the collective because we do have a voting first of all let me just preface this by saying there were so many good selections and we happened to choose nora roberts book it's called year one and it's a great story i'm not going to dive headlong into it now but i'm very excited to talk about it come our next podcast but it's a very interesting story that tells you of well 
a pheasant killing and the consequences thereafter. So I'll leave it at that. So I'm just going to say, I've killed pheasants before, and very rarely has it ended in the apocalypse. So color me intrigued. Indeed. Indeed. And do you want to talk a little bit about our second book? Absolutely. So we are currently reading Dresden, Stormfront, book one, which I read quite a while back, and it's really exciting to restart that legacy, so to speak, because Dresden is one of those series you fall in love with, the characters, the dynamics of those characters, all of the interplay. There's a lot of intrigue, and the plot thickens with each and every book. Jim Butcher does such an excellent job, and Stormfront begins that so-called storm and continues it in subsequent books. So really exciting stuff that I'm very, very eagerly anticipating talking about in the long run. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about all of that with you, but that's for episode three. Hint, hint, tune in, like, and subscribe, guys. I do think we should probably get into the bear and the nightingale, though, and talk a little bit about this wonderful book about fairies and Russia and little girls who are called frogs and the prophecies therein. TJ, would you like to kick us off here? Because you had some interesting, if controversial, opinions on Friday. So my, I fortunately have finished the book since then. I do have to say the ending made up for the delay. It was, I'm just going to go ahead and drop it. There was a lot of what the fuck that happened. Unfortunately, it didn't change my overall opinion of the book, though. I thought that the book was okay. It was very well written. The story was very well told. And Catherine Arden, right? Yes, Boz yeah. corrected me on that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I, could, I couldn't remember if it was Catherine Arden or Catherine Gatti because Catherine Gatti narrates the book. She does a fantastic job. Um, my main issues with the book itself was for some strange reason, and I come from, I'm not a stranger to reading science fiction and fantasy. But a lot of it, for some reason, I couldn't keep the name straight. It was very difficult for me to remember which character was which. And while the story definitely had a lot of the what in the heck is going on near the end, it just wasn't enough to make it like a four star. I I put it at a solid three star. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I definitely appreciated it, though. Fair enough. I do have some thoughts on that, but I will save them for the general conversation. Jessica, I can kind of feel you having thoughts over there. Do you want to tell us what you thought? (laughs) So I actually agree with what TJ said, especially about the names. I could keep a few of the characters straight, but A lot of the times when I was listening to it, I was like, wait, who, what, what, what? But to be honest with you, I was just kind of like, okay, whatever, whoever you are, you're doing this and, you know, whatever. There's one interesting thing that 
I'm not sure if anyone that may have just been browsing on Goodreads uh, might have seen, but I actually put up there that I finished the book. I did not give it a rating. And the reason for that is, is because when the options popped up, I kid you not, I sat there for at least 10 minutes arguing with myself on what, how many stars to give the book. And I just couldn't decide. So I didn't rate it. And my thoughts are, even though I didn't absolutely love it, I'm wondering and thinking that maybe if I pick up the second book, if I'm able to rate the second book, I might be able to actually go back and rate the first book. That is an interesting thought, the idea of context for rating. I, I must admit that I tend to do that for later volumes in the series, but I can't say I've ever done it for earlier volumes. That's actually the very, very first time that I have ever done anything like that with a book as well. Okay, either way, for actually liking the book, we're batting zero here. Leslie, will you be our first positive review? I always take a book for what it is, when it is. And to me, right now, I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life. Um, and the book was a wonderful opportunity to take a breath, just sit there, imagine myself by a fire, and uh, somebody telling me this story and be swept away with it. I do understand why people had trouble remembering the names. They are not unusual, but they are uncommon to us, uh, most of us, and they are also very long in most cases. I don't know if it's just me, and maybe I do this with most of my books, um, but I try to remember who's who that's like super important. So like if we're following Vasya, obviously I'll remember that she is the person we're following. Um, and sometimes it's like, wait, who is that again? Um, but then eventually I'll remember who that person was. But really, if you're swept up in the story, it really doesn't matter to me. I think that I didn't have as much trouble following who was who as, as some of the others here. But again, I do understand. Um, I thought that it was a really different sort of fairy tale that I'm used to, which in and of itself was refreshing um, because I do read a lot of fantasy. And sometimes, unfortunately, it can be a little bit of a, I don't want to say rinse and repeat because that just sounds really rude, but it, it just kind of, you know, book after book does seem a little formulaic. So I, I really thought that it was different, and I enjoyed that. I will say, though, the setting was different for me. I, I usually don't um, read stuff that takes place in, you know, Russia, or that is, you know, a little dark like that, because mostly I read fantasy for escapism. Um, so it did, it kind of hit the spot for me, but at the same time, like, I don't know that I would have read it if it hadn't been a book club book. Um, I did, I did, I think I rated it four stars um, because of that, just like, this isn't really usually typically my thing element, um, but that is the only reason why I thought that it was solidly a good read. Hey, so that's better than we've been doing so far. Uh, thank you, Leslie, for a positive review. 
if admittedly still something of a mixed one. Um, Fairy, are you going to keep our streak of positive reviews going? Or are you going to pull us back into the dank swamps of three-star mediocrity? I am probably going to take off for the stars because I don't think there's anything mediocre about this book. I can see where the name confusion comes from, especially because they're not names that we're familiar to seeing on the page. And so if it all feels a little bit daunting and it all feels a little bit foreign, it, it, sometimes the brain can go, what's this? I don't like this. This isn't me. Um, and, and that's more than fair. I read this book at the beginning of last year. And I went on to read the others in the series. And um, when the book club theme came around of hope, I immediately thought of this book because of the scene where Vasya refuses to bow to her stepmother's wishes and go to a convent and is sent out looking for snowdrops and actually comes back with them. It was several scenes, but, you know, whatever. We'll say one scene for, for posterity's sake. This book has a lot of emotions, which I love. This book has a lot of darkness, but also a lot of light. So it didn't feel too heavy because it had the feeling of a fairy story and a fairy story well told. The suspense was there and the the warmth was there and the quaintness was there. And, but it was also very historically accurate. I felt like I was taking a peek into what life would have been like in the, in, in the case of a, a normal Russian household that the attention to detail was lovely. The characters felt very fleshed out to me. I wanted to hug people and shake people and slap people and, you know, talk with them. And, and I think that when you want to have a conversation with a character, it's the mark of a good book. I also think for Jessica specifically, but anyone in general, I think that the second and third book in the trilogy really fleshes out the first one. The first one is good. But it's an introductory book. It's a base book. It's 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 Vasya's growing up book, and it's beautiful for that. It really does that well. The the countryside and the all of the things that happen to her and the interplay between religion and old ways and magic and her and society and there's so many different shifting things that that all have their threads that begin here, and you see those develop complexity as she develops complexity and they get wider in scale as she goes farther away and um this book has probably my top couple in all of the fantasy that i've ever read i love the the particular way this book does some things so i highly recommend that if anyone enjoyed it at least a little bit to pick up the next two because you see even more things flushed out but no i loved this book and i have been recommending it essentially for the past year because i think that for anyone who enjoys something heavy and something dark but that doesn't feel dark because of the way that it's presented and who enjoys emotional realism and and history used in fascinating ways i i think it's absolutely a book that is worth its time all right I would make one point, which you mentioned it's seeing a sort of common Russian household. I I think it's easy to forget. It's not They're not super common. They're actually the lords. They're wealthy. And I, I only say that because I forget it, too, because they talk about getting so cold that they have to sleep on the giant stone oven and about not having enough food in the winter. 
And that's just very stark to me, this idea that even the Lord is running short of food in the winter and huddling together for warmth with all the blankets they've got. And I think that really drives home exactly how harsh the normal winters are, not even getting into the winter that happens after they piss off the spirits. Very good point. Okay, Boz. We're now two in a row for liking the book. Do you keep that going? Or do you side with TJ and Leslie in that... Or not TJ and Leslie, but TJ and Jessica in that monstrous corner of three-star mediocrity? No monstrous corner for me. Mediocrity is set aside for this book. Because I thought it was wonderful. And I thought it was wonderful... For a couple of reasons. First of all, with a bit of research I did, I was thoroughly impressed by a couple of things. First and foremost, Catherine Arden is relatively young, guys. I mean, she was born in 1987 in Texas. So being 33 years old and writing in such a capacity is pretty fantastic. Second of all, she studied Russian in college. So I almost feel it was a kind of exploration for her just as much as it was an exploration for us. What I really liked about the book were a couple of things. Versatility. I can tell you that if I were in seventh grade or even in high school, I'd thoroughly appreciate the vast themes that this book had. Not as much as I would today, but I would very much have appreciated the storyline, in particular, the valiance of Vasya, how she overcomes all of the challenges that face her, from the limitations imposed on her, for instance, marriage or convent, to how she sacrifices her time, herself, because she bleeds in order to appease the spirits and thereby save her village. I would have found that indispensable in a character. But going deeper, and this is where the versatility comes in, because it not only satisfies people of all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of ages, because I would have appreciated this were I in middle school or high school, but going beyond that, what I really, really loved are the themes of religiosity sprinkled throughout the book as well. Specifically with Constantine, the whole misdirection in religion, the fear-mongering that he tries to strike, because that is how he sees it. God is almighty and as such inspires fear. All of that was just spectacular. And there is one scene that I'd like to point out that pretty much complements what I said rather perfectly. It is actually part of one of those WTF moments that TJ was talking about, and I'll tell you why. Because in this scene, what's usually sacrilegious, sacrosanct, whatever you want to call it, is turned upside down. Because they're in church. They're enjoying, or at least trying to enjoy, the lecture that Constantine gives. 
And as he's giving this lecture, as he is striking fear in the followers that he has, a spirit makes its way in and scares Anna Ivanovna. And I think that's one of the most powerful things because typically you don't see that. You think to yourself, church, spirits are not there. Spirits don't belong, whether for good or for evil, they're just, they don't belong there. But thematically, she paints this powerful picture and tells you that there's so much more to religion than the physical manifestation that is a church. It's a deep spirited connection that you have to make, whether with God or whether with the divinity that you believe in. And I think that's one of the themes, and I could talk about this book for quite a while, but I'll shut up. That's one of the themes that I really, really find intriguing is that whole religion and how it could be misdirected and how it needs to be directed the right way for things to be righted. I could arguably listen to you talk about this all day, Boz, but... Um... <laughs> no, nah, I don't think... I, I, I'll, I'll shut up right now and you know, give people a chance because I, I love this book. Seriously, it was such a great book, and my Goodreads review was five stars. It was just awesome. I'll touch on one more point before we conclude, but I'll give people a chance to talk first because I, I love this book. So Awesome. Um, I will say what was kind of neat, or at least what struck me about that moment for me, was that previous to Constantine arriving we had always seen the churches as spirit-free places. These old Russian spirits had no place in them. But all the churches we'd seen before that, they were places of genuine piety, of safety, of comfort. It's actually very notable that the spirits can only enter the church once Constantine makes it a place of fear and obligation. They're no longer believing because their hearts are in it. They're believing now because they're afraid of Constantine and the winter and the world around them. He stopped making it a place of belief, for lack of a better word, and started making it a place of fear. And he even acknowledges that, that he believes Constantine does, that... It's right and good that the people look upon him with fear. That's the way he believes that they're supposed to express devotion. And when that happens, the old world starts to creep back in, even while the old world is dying. And having said that, I realize that I probably should have let myself go first because now I have to follow you guys. <laughs> I feel so much less analytical. No, I actually like that. You're, you're always analytical, Chris. Come on. You have I liked such it. an awesome perspective. So here's where I am on the book. And I'd say I, it was a comfortable four stars, four and a half, if four and a half had been an option. I loved the fairy tale-ness of it, the sort of odd and troubling mixed with the mundane and sometimes even the absurd. And then to mix that with the sort of stark 
almost ruthless practicality of Russian life just kind of served to emphasize that all the more. I loved that it was a book about the clash of cultures, the old world and religions colliding with the sort of new God in Christianity. I'm, I'm a sucker for that. And I'm a sucker for watching as authors strike that balance. I think it's why I enjoy urban fantasy as much as I do. And why one of my favorite moments in all of literature is about a dog being told that he's not allowed to ask if Jesus has a sausage in his pocket. But Gotta that's love Kevin a, Hearn. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> but that's a complete tangent. I love that this book escalates. And I love that the more the... That the modern strictures and confinements are try are placed on the old world and things of the old world, the faster things escalate, the more malicious the spirits become. And some of these spirits were pretty malicious to begin with. I loved just that feeling as the winter became harsher, as the spirits started to fade away how Vasha was doing her best to keep the old ways alive when all the people were too afraid to do it or unwilling to do it and back to my idea my commentary on the book using Christianity or particularly a fear-based Christianity I loved that the stepmother Anna could see the old Russian spirits but had been convinced that the only things that weren't God had to be demons. So she believed that she was surrounded by demons, even when they were helpful, even when they were harmless. They drove her insane because she could not see them, and everyone else could. Well, rather, she couldn't not see them, which is something everyone else had no problem doing. Like, a lot of people kind of knew the spirits were there because... You do. You know that they're there if you believe in them the same way that you know that the wind is there or that air is there or that there's a person in the other room. You're not immediately aware of them at this moment, but of course they're there because why would they not be there? But Anna and Vasha and a few other people through the narrative can actually see them. And it was fascinating to watch the different reactions to that, even if Anna's reaction to that was through the, her Christian strictures to slowly go insane. So when I was reading about Anna, when I read about how she reacts to the spirits around her, I gave pause figuratively and literally to the book so that I could let my thoughts organize themselves it was such a powerful interplay between the two, Vasya and Anna. And in a sense, while we think that they're in stark contrast, Vasya, the brave explorer with a thirst to know more, Anna, the fearful, nerve-wracking woman, they're not that different. 
Both of them have a childlike quality. Both of them don't know what's around them, not 100%. They react to it in different ways. But all in all, they have that childlike quality. They don't know everything. And Anna, in particular, has a very palpable childlike quality to her. Some might call it innocence, fear. Certainly, it's intimated by Constantine when he sees her, and particularly toward the end when he leads her to her ultimate demise, and she screams and screams as a child would. That, to me, is to be pitied. She transforms from the wretched draconian stepmother to the timid, fearful, sad child. And there's such a similarity. There's such that there's that resemblance between the two. And it's very evident in the end, especially. And it's so chillingly powerful. I really, really love that. And that's, again, one of that the, one of those themes that I came to appreciate in the story. Another example of one of those WTF moments, and you guys can tell me if you agree or not. So, again, what we consider as sacrosanct, what we consider as sacred, both in literature and religion, kind of gets turned on its head. Because in the story, and this is what really intrigued TJ and was the impetus for him to continue. Dunya, Dunya, the kindly mother to these kids, because she is, even though she's not biologically their mother, I mean, she is their mother in a sense because she's, she takes care of them, dies. And her death is considered sacred, at least to me, because she died a noble woman. She died with a message for Vasya to take care, to watch out. And you think, okay, may she rest in peace. But man, she doesn't, guys. She really doesn't. She rises <laughs> and rises well. It kind of turns all of our expectations, again, be they literary or religious, on their head. And that's when you think, whoa, what? She's supposed to die. She's supposed to rest in peace. Now, Instead of resting in peace, she rises and, well, tries to cut Yen to pieces. <laughs> I really liked her rising. I really liked the darkness of seeing familiar faces. I liked the animation. I liked the desperation that it bred. I think the harsh winter was a really good landscape for it. I think it made everything come alive because of just how cold and desperate and bleak everything was. So I, I think that uh, Catherine Arden did a really good job in crafting this because the mood was set well. And because the mood was set well, and because the emotions were written well from the very beginning, we felt a lot of things both when she died and when she rose. It felt sort of like a violation, which was totally, I think, intended because for Vasya and her family, it was a violation. Agreed. TJ. Boz mentioned that Donya and the, the death and then the 
not so death was kind of the impetus for you to actually finish the book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I thought that because up until, okay, so I got to the point, I, I just got pretty much to the point where Dunya died. And up until that point, it seemed to be a very, a growing up story, if you will, because through a lot of the narrative, we are taken through Vasya, her life when you were, when she was born up until who she is at that point. And my thought process was, again, I didn't find it too terribly bad either. I will admit I just got distracted with other books and didn't feel like returning to it. I didn't have that feeling of, I really want to read this or I'm curious to know what happens in the end. And when we spoke about it at our general book club meeting on Friday, the spoilerific part of it, knowing that Dunya rises again, came up. And that to me was like, well, wait, why do we have Russian zombies? Um, <laughs> what is the point for her? And she rises like people come back from the dead. And I'm sure that the, oh, what is it called? Does anybody recall what the name of what she becomes is? Oh, Lord, I'd have to look it up. Boz, you're functionally encyclopedic. I could have sworn they said vampire, but maybe not. I feel like I'd remember vampire, but it's also entirely possible that it was vampire and I don't remember it. I'm just going to feel silly. (laughs) I don't think it was vampire. I I want to say the Domovoy, but that wasn't it. No, the... Domovoy is the house spirit, the one who's kind of bound inside, who has domain over in the state and the, the, the house, uh, does the mending and lives in the hearth. And I think, are the Domovoys the one who usually live in the ovens? I think I'm remembering that right. Yes, the Domovoy lived in the big oven, um, right. which actually helps a little escape because it gives you a it kind of reminds you how big this oven actually is moreover that this oven is open it's an open coal oven in this kitchen was it the oompier i don't know perhaps maybe yes okay i'm sure she had mentioned it previously but there was a lot of a lot there because I will be the first person to tell you the only thing I know about Russia is vodka. And uh, I'm not even a vodka expert. <laughs> but we I can <laughs> But what I can say is when it was brought up in the meeting that the Umpir Udunya came back as the is the Russian zombie umpir thing. I was very curious to know like what impact does that have? Why and huh? And so yeah, it was kind of a, a, a driving force to finishing this the series. I'm sorry, to finishing the story is to figure out. Wait, she comes back again. Why this lady just died and this book didn't seem like the zombie apocalypse or anything that magical. Um, which I guess is on me because, well, they've been seeing these spirits and constant 
Constantine, the priest, I think Constantine, has been hearing at this point what I thought was the voice of God. And although to not notice these things is somewhat fair because you kind of expect Constantine to believe he can talk to God. And a lot of our story is told to the perspective of Vasya, who Vasya doesn't make a big deal out of the spirits. And like she doesn't really describe them or talk about them all that much until she realizes that other people can't see them. It's not until she realizes other people can't see them that she brings them into the narrative. You know what I thought was really cool was um, just to touch on the point that it's not that Vasya doesn't believe in God or worship God, is that she also believes in the old world spirits because there's a scene where she very clearly says may god help us all and on a historical note you actually see a lot of that in early christian conversions and polytheists and animists and people like that had no real problem accepting the christian god and jesus and any of the rest of that it's when they ran into the there's only one God insistence that they tended to have a little bit of issue. Because they had no problem accepting, oh, you have this one God. Oh, that's wonderful. We've got a lot of gods. Wait, what? You don't think our gods are gods? That's kind of where the clash started for a lot of people and where the resistance to Christianity comes from historically. I mean, it came from for Judaism as well, but since Judaism was a lot more culturally confined, it didn't clash nearly as much, at least in the era of history that we have good records for. I was also going to say um, that I can understand why <laughs> Jessica thought it was a vampire, now that I know that it's called an oopier. Um and I can also, yeah, and I can also see that it kind of behaved like a vampire, and that it cut open a horsey's throat and drank its blood, and kind of just left it there. Um, so yeah, there you go. And then everybody ate the horse for dinner. Well, they were hungry. So this book and its 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 exploration of religion kind of reminds me of another series that I read uh, that was set in sort of medieval Britannia. And in that particular uh, fantasy undertaking, uh, the original gods of the people were converted into saints, but the saints still had power. And so... It was a really fascinating sort of look at how old ways can slip into and around Christian faiths and sort of the patterns that that can make. I think maybe a few people have read it. I don't remember. Uh, the His Fair Assassin series by Robin Lefevers is the one that I'm talking about. It's interesting that you guys were talking about the fact that you're reminded strongly of vampires because I went and did some digging on the internet and it turns out that a couple of websites, bookworm.net and 
of blog actually say that the Upiri are indeed Russian vampires or vampires <laughs> of a sort. Yeah, so multiple sites actually do affirm that they're vampires. Whether or not it's true, I'm not really sure, but more than one person definitely has that impression. So that's the fun thing. And I've studied a certain amount of folklore because, well, I'm that kind of nerd. But in any case, one of the neat <laughs> things that you see when you study folklore is how many cultures, in some cases across massive time and distance, will have stories that have shocking similarities to each other. The bones of these stories will be similar in how they'll take stories from each other and adapt them. One of the things that um, early scholars traveling amongst the Nordic peoples said is while they all have the same cast of gods, if you'd go from one valley to another, it's entirely possible to find two villages separated by a handful of miles at most to have completely different ideas of who Odin is and completely different stories about him. And then you see over time these stories blend. And this also brings us back to the commentary on Christian saints adopting certain older gods into sainthood, which did happen occasionally, though the Catholic Church doesn't like to acknowledge that very much. But beyond that, you actually see a lot of pagan ritual being brought into Christianity in a lot of different ways, um, up to the point where celebrating the birth of Jesus during um, midwinter, during what would otherwise have been a pagan winter festival in December, because they needed a festival there because the people wanted a festival, but it needed to be something the Christians approved of and be important enough that people would willingly switch over. And you see this again with things like the date for Easter and other situations, um, even a lot of our sort of Christmas rituals and some of our incense and other things you see in church are things that have been brought in from less Christian places than a lot of people like to admit. And I'd love to go more deeply into this, but I can already hear people unsubscribing and it's a little early for me to be chasing off our listeners like this <laughs> well that and i think we want to be fair and and approach this is not i don't want to i don't want to give anybody the impression that we're trying to bash christianity or any other religion because i i think that i can safely say unanimously that that is not the objective but in a conversation or a book like this where religion is a large portion of it, 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 it's going to come up. I don't mean to bash Christianity. That's the last thing on my mind. I'm sometimes critical of organized religion, but the last thing I want to do is to criticize somebody for what they believe. I mean, just within this little group here, I'd say we have a pretty wide representation of different beliefs. And I do respect 
those beliefs to a great deal. So I do apologize if my little cultural lecture it came off that way. No offense taken. No, I think we're I think it's I think it's safe to say that we're all trying to accomplish the same thing and give respect to everybody's beliefs and 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 all of the religions and and everything where they're due. I think that part of respecting a religion is also respecting the roots of it and I didn't see bashing like I absolutely no one no one here is intending to bash religion um Christianity or otherwise. But I think it's really fascinating and sort of in a way respectful when you know enough about a religion to be able to talk about the roots of it and, and what contributed to it. I think that is also um can 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 be a note of respect to know something's history. So I personally I'm glad that we have that kind of nerd to parent Chris's words back in our group <laughs> because that perspective is a really valuable one and I think it adds a lot of depth and a lot of rich thought that is a bit harder to come by if you don't know all those things and I'm too lazy to look it up so you know you 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 do great well I agree with you part of my belief system espouses the philosophy of asking questions something that I wholeheartedly agree with and in order to ask questions they say that sometimes you have to dive into areas that are questionable to you, your psyche, areas that are uncomfortable. But that's something that, to me, I try to embrace because that's one way we can fully learn about ourselves, our religion, selfhood, etc., etc. And that kind of circles back to the book because, in essence, that is certainly not what they do. They're very enclosed because of the direction of Constantine. Again, fear striking comes to mind. He doesn't want them to ask questions. He doesn't invite consideration. And that's what creates the problem. That's what inspires the fear. The lack of questions, the lack of research, the lack of knowledge leaves people scant and benighted in more than one way. I 100% agree, and that comes back to my own personal philosophy and what will probably explain a lot about me to people who don't know me and to people who know me a little better, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I believe nothing is above scrutiny. Nothing is above being questioned and analyzed. And to that end, I would scrutinize and question just about everything because only blind acceptance comes from not doing that and that's the one thing I will never do is simply blindly accept anything actually you guys brought up some good points about the the book being relating to even you know personal um, philosophies and, and such um one thing I was thinking of while listening to all of that is that it doesn't actually give you, well, in, in this department, it doesn't give you straight answers, but not in a nagging way. It leaves it open for interpretation. At least this is my opinion of what do you think this book is trying to say about all of this? And my personal 
beliefs also, like, sometimes I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, not because of myself, but because of the actions of other people and organized religion. Um, I am a Christian, but I question things all the time. I, I question things that are in the Bible. I question things that have been said. And I, I mean, I don't question them as in, oh, I don't believe this anymore. But I, there are things, I mean, I'm conflicted about things all the time. And to me, that's normal. I don't think somebody should literally just go to church every Sunday, read the Bible and be like, I'm just going to sit here and pass judgment down to others and literally not question anything about what I'm doing or what other people are doing or anything like that. Um, and I don't really think questioning or even looking into other religions is bad. That doesn't mean, I mean, I read fantasy books that have everything in them to pegasuses, to fairies. That doesn't mean I believe in them or worship them. It just means I read about them. And it's, I think it's healthy. Oh, come on. You know you worship unicorns. Have to worship the unicorn. <laughs> okay, I, well, yeah, I love unicorns. Maybe I, maybe, I, maybe I want a pet unicorn. But other than that... <laughs> unicorns are amazing. See, I want a dragon. I'm with you on the dragon. I'll also say that if someone could show me a unicorn, like an actual unicorn, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. This staunch atheist would possibly consider adopting nature worship. <laughs> I, so now, actually, I don't really know what I would want because I love unicorns, dragons, phoenix, and pegasuses. Pegasus. I just want to hang out with all Pegasus. of them. Yes, really. Yes. Let's let's build a cabin in the Forbidden Forest because it has all of those things. <laughs> it you also has spiders. <laughs> forget all those things. Forget all those things for a minute. There's only one magical creature I wish existed, and specifically, I wish there was one, and I wish I had it. Genie. And not like a lab. <laughs> I need to emphasize, not like Aladdin, Robin Williams, genie. No. I mean, like, straight up um, Arabian folklore, as many wishes as I want, functionally no restriction. He may not like me over much, so I need to be a little bit careful about what I wish for. But that's really the only downside kind of genie. <laughs> Boz, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just sounded so like, oh my God. <laughs> well, I, I no, man, no. Boz, only I, because I Boz not. is the only person in this group who probably grew up with those stories. Whereas the rest of us would have had to get them through Disney and then possibly later seeking them out <laughs> as adults. Whereas Boz would have grown up with stories about these creatures. They're pretty real for us though i mean they appear very much in religious text and i think it would be the coolest thing to see one but you know one can dream uh i'd still prefer my unicorn fair enough fair enough 
Though I wouldn't want to keep it as a pet. I think all those creatures named are a bit too wild to keep as pets, unless it was a willing I pet. I think when I said pet, I didn't mean pet as in, oh, you're like, you know, like a dog or a cat. But I want to be a, a friend. I want to be able to call them and have them come to me. Just thinking of Obsidian Mountain Trilogy unicorns where um, they are, they choose their companions and they're, they basically, it's almost like choosing your mate, except not that weird. It's like, they're, you're basically bonded to this creature. Spirit um, animal? Um, they choose you. So, right. basically, they choose to protect you, and they choose to give you a ride, and they choose to ride into battle with you. What books are these? They sound interesting. They are, they are the Obsidian... I think they're called the Obsidian Mountain Trilogy. Okay. Um, they're co-written by Mercedes Lackey, and um, unfortunately, I don't remember who else. Um, but they are really good. So I was actually going to say that the, the unicorns you described reminded me a little bit of the companions from the Valdemar series. And now I guess I know why. <laughs> yep, that would be why. All right. Does anyone have any thoughts, um, any last thoughts on the Bear and the Nightingale? I was just actually going to touch on the topic that we were talking about before, in particular on what Jessica says. And I think it encompasses the story pretty well and what we need to learn from it and what we need, how I think we need to interpret things in general. And I heard J.K. Rowling's Harvard speech in 2008. It was really, really good. Found the full text on the Harvard Gazette because I wanted to pull a quote from it and I didn't want to botch it. So the reason I say that it touches on what Jessica says is because this quote focuses on the imagination. And you'll see why it's relevant when I read it. It says, so, though I personally defend the value of bedtime stories to my last gasp, I've learned to value imagination in a much broader sense. She goes on to say that imagination, and I surround this in quotes, is not only the uniquely human capacity to envision that which is not, and therefore the founder of all invention and innovation, and its arguably most transformative and revelatory capacity. It is the power that enables us to empathize with humans whose experiences we have never shared. And it's such a powerful quote and something that resonates in the Harry Potter series. And I dare say something that Arden tries to tell us. Be open-minded, ask these questions, because it's okay to do so. With your imagination, you can be open-minded. You can, it, imagination is essentially the pathway to being as receptive. And by being receptive, you are, as Rowling points out, ultimately on your way to empathy. And I think that's really, really cool. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. I was just going to say, despite my middling of the road three-star review, definitely don't regret reading the book. It was definitely thought-provoking and a wonderfully told story. It it really, really was. I can understand exactly why Jessica and Bazad and Chris praised it to the moon. And 
while it wasn't necessarily something that I I probably well, I don't know. I might continue with it. I'm I'm still waffling on that. But it it probably was one of the one of the most interesting experiences I've I've had in reading a book in a while. There was an interesting question brought up a little bit earlier in the cast that I would love to get everyone's thoughts on before we say au revoir for another month. Um, and that thought was retroactively rating books because it was brought up the idea that possibly reading the second book could inform your opinion on the first. Has anyone else ever done this? And the reverse of that, has a previous book ever bolstered your rating for its sequel? Yes, on the second question. So I believe there have been, uh, this has only happened a couple of times, but I would read a a trilogy or uh, a series or, you know, a sequel or, or something. And I would have a rating on a book and I would read the second book. And then I thought, you know, now that I know how these books fit together, I think I'm going to go back. And I think what I did was um, for the first book, I had a, I don't remember if I bumped it from three stars to four stars or from four to five, but it doesn't really matter that much. I I believe what happened was I the first story got bumped up uh, from me reading the second book and or also reading the rest of the books. So the second book and further series gave you a deeper appreciation for the first book retroactively made that book better essentially yes uh i am with jessica usually if i have a book that i really super care for as a first book if i do change the wording of it it is higher and it is based on other books sometimes you know it's not always sometimes a first book just remains mediocre and sometimes it's wonderful and you know it doesn't always change but often I will read a sequel or a series and I go, oh, this makes sense. It was a building book and it had to be this slow because of X, Y, Z. Or it had to do with this character I don't like because of X, Y, Z. And so I, I, I try to evaluate the story holistically and completely and base my ratings on all of its parts, but also on it as a whole. So even if I don't like a book, I will be likely to give it a little more credit if it if it serves a role that I can see having a use in other parts of the series. So when I first started with Goodreads, what I ended up doing was hurriedly putting all of the books that I read on this page. And it was a slapdash kind of thing because while I did put most of the books that I read, I rated them three stars, each and every one of them, including Harry Potter and Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, which in retrospect, I really shouldn't have done because each series was in and of itself spectacular, vivid, and is worthy of praise so much so that it, to me, unquestionably deserves a five-star rating. But I just 
because of my hurried effort to put everything on Goodreads, rated each and every book three stars, at least all of the books that I had read prior to Goodreads. So would I change those? Probably, but I don't know if I want to go through all of them either and do it. But No need this, to, just do it as you think about it. Yeah, this is true. But no, I mean, this is it's definitely hats off to all of those authors because they do such an awesome job writing. So my ratings there didn't reflect my rating, the true way I feel about those books. But for the most part now, I do take the time to rate books. And generally, I'm pretty satisfied with my ratings today. So at least that's a good thing. All right. TJ, what about you? Do you ever find yourself retroactively upping a rating because a second book or third book made a series better or vice versa? The first book makes the second book better than it might have otherwise been because it's part of a thing. So typically when I read a book, I evaluate the first book in a series as do I want to continue? And if it rates high enough, typically I will continue in an attempt to judge each perspective book on its own merits and how it fits within the series. On the other hand, when you ask the question, one of the things that jumped into mind is the Wheel of Time. Because the first book was okay. It was good enough for me to realize I kind of do want to go on and see what this cast of characters is going to get up to and what they're going to do. After I read the second Wheel of Time, I realized, okay, the first one actually helps set up what's going on and came to appreciate it more. On the other hand, I think that each book adds something to the series on its own merits, and it doesn't change how good or bad the first book is. I actually have retroactively rated books. I can speak to what everyone has said. So, Bazad, I did kind of the same thing. Um, and actually, I, I thought that I was rating them what I thought of them at the time. And then, like, maybe reread some of them. And I was like, you know, I really, really like that book a lot more. Or, you know, I really don't dig this book. Um, I have also taken it into consideration as part of a series. Um, and so I have gone and, and have said, oh, I like this book. Um, I think I kind of like why it was the way it was. And so I've rated it um, higher as well. Um, typically higher is is going to be what I rate rather than going lower. Um, but also I haven't done it as much. Um, and because of that, like given that, I think that it's a good, you know, tying together book or a building book. I'm more likely to rate the next book higher. So if I think that maybe a building book um, was tied together in the next book in this series and I enjoyed that, I'm more likely to, re uh, to rate that book higher um, because of, of what it did um, with the previous books, if that makes so, sense. So what you're saying is that future books can't make the first book better 
but the first book can absolutely make the ones that follow it better. Indeed. So my own thoughts on this, for anyone who knows me, they know I'm a sucker for tie-in fiction of questionable quality and will happily sit down with a Star Trek slash Star Wars slash Warhammer 40K slash Starcraft slash Robotech slash insert whatever ridiculous fandom I'm currently squeeing about at the moment. And I think it's definitely a situation where previous books and indeed the world that's been established make these books better because I've read some books that if they weren't Star Trek books would have been much, much more poorly received in my eyes. But because I knew Star Trek and I knew the characters and I knew the world that it was adding to, it made them such richer experiences. And the book that was, if it was its own thing, would be like one or two stars, might actually be three or four. Star Trek novels being a particularly good example of this because anyone who's ever delved into them can say that they vary in quality wildly from really somebody got paid to write this all the way up to if this wasn't a Star Trek novel, it would probably be winning awards. And I do think in situations like that, the fact that it does have this bigger thing to draw on does, to a certain extent, make the book better. So is it safe to say, speaking of ratings, and this is just something that I came up with, uh, since everybody just sort of started giving ratings for it, collectively, am I safe in assuming that this book is a solid four, four and a half stars uh, for for the group of us as a whole? I'd say that's probably safe. Like, I think TJ, you, and Fairy kind of balance each other out in that middle ground of four. I and actually I think... give it a five. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. I just didn't want to. Well, that no, actually I, adds I... to his point, too, is because I gave it a three, you gave it a five. Middle of that's a four. True. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm really tired. I I lost yeah. the, the thread. Yeah, no, that's yeah, what I, I gave it a five. It. So, yeah, we got a couple of. Five, a three and a five balance each other out, and Boz's uh, five and Leslie's three balance Four. it out. Oh, <laughs> then yeah, we're definitely in that. Then our average definitely floats into that four, four and a half. Thank you for Fairy. You're the one that pro- put this book forward. Yes. Yes, it was me. Yeah, thanks for putting it forward. Um, very, very interesting read. I definitely feel like I am better liter like I've expanded my knowledge and my um and my horizons a little bit for it. Um so thank you. It was it was definitely it was definitely an interesting experience. I'm always glad when someone takes a book that I have recommended and reads it and either enjoys it or in some way uses it to, to, to further your discussion or you know widened taste and I, I really think that happened here so it was a joy to read again it was a joy to explore both in the meeting and here and I hope that um, our listeners had, a, had fun exploring it too both with us and on their own 
for my part, I'd like to say um, that I'm very satisfied with um, the way that it fit the theme. Um, so again, thank you for proposing it. And yes, um, I did take a notice of the way that Hope was portrayed in the story. Um, it was just a very comfortable read, especially um, for it being January, for it being cold and dreary. Um, nice job. The second one is called The Girl in the Tower, and the third one is The Winter of the Witch, and they are both lovely books. If you guys would like to find me, I'm on Twitter, Bosman06, so feel free to follow me. I don't tweet a lot, if at all, unfortunately, but I do read it, so definitely follow me if you'd like. You're more than welcome to. All right. Uh, Fairy, where could they find you? So I am on Twitter at musicfairy, M-U-S-I-C-F-A-I-R-Y 15. I go through really sporadic periods of tweeting and not tweeting, and right now I'm kind of in a non-tweeting period. But when I am active, you will mostly find things about books, poetry, food, and... So if you enjoy any and all of those things... Or if you just want to chat about the podcast, uh, feel free to pop over and, and say hello. I do keep up with mentions and messages even when I'm not tweeting. So please, please uh, feel welcome in my space. Jessica, where can we find you? I am also on Twitter um, at Braille User Jess, capital B-R-A-I-L-L-E, capital U-S-E-R, capital J-E-S-S. Um, I'm also on facebook for those <laughs> who use facebook jessica arnold in michigan since there actually is more than one jessica arnold and i don't know but i think she might have a facebook as well it's kind of creepy but there you go tj where can we find you you can find me on twitter at t-s-q-u-i-r-e-s-711 and if you search for me on goodreads i will come up as well you can find me on twitter at Priman, P-R-E-I-M-A-N, 790. I'm also Christopher Priman on Goodreads. And if you want to find my book, it's The Amaranth Chronicles, Deviant Rising by Alexander Barnes and Christopher Priman. Leslie, where can we find you and where can they find the club? You can find me on Twitter at Firesong711. And you can also find me by that username on Goodreads. You can find the book club at Genre Book Club. Thank you all for joining us again um, this month. We look forward to meeting with you again next month and for many months to come. Until then, though, this is Christopher Priman for the Genre Book Club GBC cast saying good night and Happy reading. The Genre Book Club podcast is produced by the Genre Book Club. Thank you, Bazad, for the wonderful music and the train. Thank you, Alexander Barnes, for the podcast art. And thank you to everybody that participated in our panel. And, of course, thank you for listening. My name is TJ, and today we will be...
You can find him eating frozen yogurt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was I just going to say, yogurt. he's probably not found at the moment. I'm, oh. You can find Maggie in the window. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter, T Squires, S Q U I R E S, 711. Um, one second. <laughs>